Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on types of the nativity. And here again, our guys will be in the book of Genesis and looking at the different birth narratives in the life of Jacob and Joseph. We do want to remind you that we are entirely donor funded here at Theopolis, and right now it is giving season. So if you would like to join us as a partner or a donor, we have a link down there in the show notes. And we thank you so much for your support. We really can't do this work without you. We really hope that you enjoy this conversation, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lighthart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeff Myers discussing types of the nativity. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, James Bijan, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes, as usual, our media director, is in the background recording, and he'll be smoothing everything out and getting it ready for public distribution. Thank you for listening. We are in the middle of an Advent Christmas series, uh, and uh, this year we're working through some birth stories in the Bible. The overall title is Types of the Nativity. And we're looking specifically at the birth scenes or some of the birth scenes in the book of Genesis. There are a number of miracle miracle birth stories that we've looked at. And we started out looking at Genesis 3, which kind of sets the trajectory and the framework for understanding what the significance of the birth of a son uh, in the biblical narrative. You, you're always uh, some anticipation or hope for the birth of the one who's going to crush the serpent's head, the seed of the woman. Uh, we've looked at uh, Abraham and Sarah and uh, the miracle child Isaac. Last time we looked at the birth of Jacob and Esau to Isaac and Rebekah. Again, we have a barren woman, Rebekah, whom the Lord blesses and opens her womb so that she gives birth this time to twins. Uh, and saw how we talked about how that is a preview of not just of the miracle birth of Jesus, but of certain surrounding circumstances that accompany the birth of Jesus. And uh, that's part of the part of the overall aim of this series is to try to think through the Christmas story and the Advent events of Advent in the light of the Old Testament types, because the Old Testament types are what's giving us an interpretive framework for understanding what the birth of Jesus is all about and what we should anticipate happening around the time of the birth of Jesus. And so uh, we looked at the struggle between uh, Jacob and Esau and how that is uh, setting up a not only a trajectory for the life of Jacob and Esau, and the, the history of Israel and Edom, the descendants of Esau, but also pointing ahead to struggles between Jesus and uh, the, the, his brothers, the Jews of his time, uh, the danger that Jesus is in from the Idumean Edomite King Herod right at the beginning of his life. So we can enrich our, our Christmas palette, our Advent palette, by thinking through uh, the events of the life of the birth of Jesus from these perspectives. Now, last time I talked about the structure of Genesis in general and the, the last half of Genesis, roughly, when we're talking about, uh, well, actually, the from, from chapter 12 on, when we're talking about the history of the patriarchs, we have three large narrative sections that are the stories of Abraham, the story of Jacob, and then the story of Joseph. Uh, and uh, those are interspersed with shorter sections that are genealogical sections. And I, I noted that the life of Jacob, in a sense, covers the entire second half of the book of Genesis. Uh, his birth is described in chapter 25, and he's still alive right to, almost to the end of the book. Even though the last part of the book is really Joseph's story, Jacob is still there, 
and Jacob's experience with uh, Joseph and his brothers, his mourning over Joseph, his joy at uh, Joseph's resurrection, his move to Egypt, all that is still part of the Jacob story, even though it's, um, it's within a section of Genesis that's focusing particularly on, on Joseph. It's relevant to our considerations. Uh, there are uh, significant birth stories that are occur at the beginning and middle and end of the specific section of Genesis that's talking about Jacob. Jacob is alive through the second half of the book, but his specific story is told in chapters 25 to 35. And then beginning in chapter 36, you have a new Toledoth, a new generations section that's uh, the genealogy of, uh, of Esau. But within that uh, chapters 25 to 35 section, we have three significant births. And I, I think it's plausible to see them as uh, uh, the beginning, the middle, and the end of the story. So the beginning, of course, is the birth of Jacob himself. Rebecca is the barren woman who gives birth. In the middle of the story, we have the proliferation and the, the, the multiplication of Jacob's household. He has uh, children with four different women, 12 sons, uh, 11 sons at that point, and one daughter. But the turning point really is the opening of, of Rachel's womb. Uh, as soon as Rachel gives birth, the birth of Joseph to Rachel is the last birth story that's told in Genesis 30. And as soon as he's born, then Jacob starts talking about returning back to the land. So in a sense, the exile from uh, in Paddan Aram under the oppression of Laban is winding down as soon as Joseph is born. It's, it's also almost like the birth of Moses is the marker of the beginning of an Exodus movement. The, the birth of Joseph is, has a similar role in, uh, in the story of uh, uh, Jacob's exile and Exodus. He doesn't, Jacob doesn't immediately move back to the land, but he begins talking about it and he begins making arrangements to move back. So that birth story in the middle, uh, Rachel in particular, is a key is a key in the middle of the hinge of the story in a sense. And then um, at the end of the Jacob story, uh, at the end of the Jacob section, the Toledoth of Isaac uh, in chapter 35, what's interesting is we don't, we don't, have, we don't have the death of, uh, death of Jacob told there as we would expect. Uh, Jacob's death again isn't isn't uh, doesn't happen until right at the end of Genesis. Uh, what we do have is uh, the death of Isaac is mentioned, the death and burial of Rebecca's nurse, and the death of Rachel, uh, giving birth to her second son Benjamin. So uh, that's and then after chapter thirty-five, that that uh, that uh, collection of three death stories. Then we have a new a new section of Genesis with the Toledoth of Esau. So in, in the Joseph story, chapters 25 to 35, a birth at the beginning, a miracle birth at the beginning, a miracle birth at the end, and then Rachel's birth while uh, she uh, dies while giving birth to Benjamin right at the end of the story. And those kind of punctuate the whole narrative of Jacob's life. Uh, Peter, as I understand it, if I remember right, uh, Rachel gives birth to Joseph here. Uh, at the time when the second seven years of of uh, Jacob's um, time up in Padanaram with Laban, it's right in the middle of that 14 years. Is that right? So uh, th this kind of happens in the middle of that time, that, that, that time of servitude, and is something of a turning point in the narrative. Yeah, I think, yeah, chronologically, I think that's right. I, uh, Joseph, uh, Jim Jordan is made this point. Maybe James or Alistair can chime in with details about the chronology, but I, that's right. Joseph is not, not at the end of that string of sons, but in the way the story is told in Genesis 30, verse 24, we have the birth of Joseph 
the naming of Joseph. And then immediately verse 25, it came about when uh, Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laman, send me away. So in the, in the, in the way the narrative is going, uh, the birth of a son to, to, to uh, Rachel is the, is the hinge at the beginning of the return. Right. Yeah. And that uh, she says, she acknowledges that God has taken away her reproach seems to be also a reference to uh, circumcision, a kind of, it, it was a kind of circumcision for her, for the family. I think um, because uh, uh, once Abraham was circumcised and he begat Isaac, and I think it's in Joshua 5 where circumcision is said to remove the reproach of Egypt. Um, so uh, right here in, in the middle of the servitude of Jacob, Oh, it's fascinating too here, right? That it's Rachel who's the one who God listens to. There's no reference again to uh, Jacob, just like we saw before with um, Rebecca. Rachel is the one who is pleading, and God hears her and opens the womb, and then this changes everything. This uh, this is a new beginning, a new start. James Alistair, do you have uh, the details of the the chronology of the birth? birth of the sons at your fingertips no i don't um i think we can work out some of the details from paying attention to the age of joseph when he's sold into um egypt and then when he appears before pharaoh and then after that when jacob comes down and i think it turns out that joseph is the fifth of the brothers after judah so while the first three are disqualified um Reuben for sleeping with his father's concubine, and then Levi and Simeon for the actions in Shechem. Um, Judah and Joseph are then the rivals for the sort of firstborn rights. Uh, I, I believe that's right. Uh, Judah and Joseph are born, I think, at pretty much the same time, too. Yeah, that, and that's contrary to the way that it's, uh, it's usually taken that these uh, births are described in chronological sequence in Genesis 30. But if you, again, uh, none of us have the details at the fingertips, but uh, Jim, Jim Jordan has written on this and worked out the chronology and Joseph is, is in the kind of more to the middle of the pack rather than right at the end. Benjamin is the youngest, but uh, Joseph is, Joseph is older. I mean, Rachel's birth story, of course, comes in the context of Jacob being in Paddan Aram. He, uh, he flees there from Esau and he's staying with his uncle Laban, his uh, his mother's brother, uh, who puts him to work and oppresses him. And it's a, it's a kind of preview of the the future exodus, the future oppression in Egypt. And as later on in Egypt, Israel multiplies uh, and prospers, even under the oppression. And we have the statement at the beginning of Exodus, this piling up of terminology to describe Israel's fruitfulness while in Egypt, in spite of the abuse that they get from Pharaoh. And the same thing is happening in Genesis 30. Jacob is having a bunch of kids. Um, uh, Leah has four. Uh, Rachel gives her maid to uh, Jacob. She has a couple. Leah gives her maid to Jacob. She has a couple. Leah has a couple more. And then finally, Rachel has uh, Joseph. So there's a the theme of fruitfulness in the midst of in the midst of oppression is a part of the situation here. And again, pointing ahead to the Exodus. At the start of the chapter, um, Genesis 13, verse 1, we get this interesting sort of two things that are, uh, again, sort of 
put in the background of all this. Um, we we told about Rachel's um, envy. She's envious of her sister. And then she says to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. And so sort of death and envy are, are sort of bubbling away beneath the surface in what follows. And they're going to be very important. You know, um, Rachel is going to be given children and, and die, actually, um, in the not too distant future. And of course, her son, um, is, uh, Joseph, is, is going to be envied um, uh, by his brothers. And that's going to lead to a, a kind of death and, resu- death and resurrection experience um, for him. And just strikes me as interesting that all these narratives we've lo- looked at, death is, is there um, described just before these uh, births take place in a variety of ways. You know, we saw um, in Genesis 3, there's the promise that you eat of it, you shall die beforehand. Uh, last time round, we looked at Abraham's um, or uh, the Isaac incident and there Abraham's death is recounted slightly out of place so that that um, sits behind the narrative. And, and it's a common theme. I need to make one correction. I think I misspoke earlier uh, in terms of the chronology. Uh, Judah, Joseph and Judah are born uh, after the first after the first two seven-year periods. So it's year 14 in Padanaram because uh, uh, Jacob spends 20 years there and leaves on the 21st year. So um, yeah, just, just a correction there in terms of the chronology. I think on uh, your comments, James, uh, you have the envy between the the sisters, uh, wives, uh, reminds me of uh, the struggles that uh, go on in the house of Elkanah at the beginning of the book of Samuel, where Peninnah is fertile, Hannah, who's the favored wife, is not, and there's a struggle. And there it's not Hannah envying Peninnah, but Peninnah treating Hannah with contempt because she's the one who's bearing children and uh, and Hannah isn't. Um, we don't have that explicit here in Genesis from Leah, but uh, one one expects that there was some uh, there was mutual hostility between them, which which uh, adds another dimension to the to the life of Jacob as a life of wrestling and struggle. I mean, he begins his life struggling in the womb with Esau. He struggles throughout his his time uh, with his with his father, with his brother, with Laban, and then he he you know retreat into the uh, into the haven from a heartless world in his own little tent and. He's got these two wives who are struggling with each other and competing with each other uh, for his bed, for his attention, um, for for children. So that it's just another dimension of, of the life of wrestling that uh, characterizes Jacob. And the wrestling also pairs with the wrestling of um, Esau and Jacob. So Leah is very much associated with Esau, and she's the older who's rejected and unloved for the sake of the younger. And the mix-up of the two, um, where Jacob is deceived by Laban, is a sort of payback in some sense for the confusion of the two by Rebecca, his sister. And it seems that the resolution of that conflict of wrestling between the two sisters here, which really defines um, Rachel's initial experience, she names the two sons by Bilhah, Um, After that wrestling, the Lord has judged in her case, in the case of Dan, and then Naphtali, that she is 
wrestled with great wrestlings with her sister. And then there's the curious incident of the, um, the mandrakes. And then that wrestling is solved. And then the Lord remembers her. And that pivotal moment is the pivotal moment in the story more generally. At that point, there is this, um, the rise, as it were, of Jacob and then his final um, escape from the house of Laban. But there is a turning point there that, again, I think the 14 years are probably significant here. There's 14 years between the birth of Ishmael and Isaac. There's 14 years that are served in the house of um, Laban. There's 14, it's in the 14th year that um, Joseph enters into the service of Pharaoh. And then there's 14 years of the, um, of the, the years of plenty and then the years of famine and that motif i think is significant the division between these two periods of time um some period of blessing followed by a period of decline and then deliverance at the end through a particular sign and here i think that turning point is very much focused upon the events in the wheat harvest and then that's paralleled in the later part of the chapter with the flocks which maybe helps us to understand what's taking place here, that Laban has not given Jacob his beautiful you, um, Rachel. He's given the, the ugly speckled spotted, as it were, um, Leah instead. But yet the Lord will make Jacob great through the speckled and spotted, and he'll also receive the beautiful one as well. What, what do you all make of uh, the... Um, offer of maids to Jacob. Um, I mean, Rachel does it because she's barren. So you have a kind of replay of Sarah's intentions with Hagar. Uh, in the case of Hagar, um, things don't go the way that Sarah hoped. And uh, there's a there's this crisis that arises because of uh, Ishmael in the house, double, two, two different events in the, with Hagar and Ishmael. But here, the Everything goes quite smoothly. Bilhah is, is what, what Rachel wants her to be, which is just kind of a, a convenient surrogate, a womb. Uh, and the way that her pregnancies are described, um, verse 4 of chapter 30, uh, Rachel gave her, her maiden Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Very, very terse and straightforward. The same thing happens when she conceives or bears a second son in verse 7. So it doesn't... this. This uh, this plan that caused so much turmoil in the house of Abraham, uh, it doesn't do that here. Any any thoughts on the contrast? What what uh, what's going on there, Peter? You're saying it it uh, these uh, interactions don't cause conflict. Seems like they do. Seems like there's a great deal of rivalry between the sisters. Yeah, between the sisters, uh, I guess the it's the maybe that's the maybe that's the answer to my question that the maids are just uh, pawns yeah. in the game that the sisters are playing, and so the conflict is elsewhere. It's not it's not focused on the maids. I'd also say that although um, Rachel believed that she was getting children for herself through Bilhah, it ends up being the children of Bilhah and. Um, Zilpah and Leah that are the rivals of her son, Joseph. And so it's when Joseph brings back a bad report about those children that um, there is this eventual plot to sell him, to kill him. 
Right. So you have the you have the Ishmael Isaac tension among the sons, right? Yeah, and yeah, I guess the the thing that struck me was the 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 similarity between Rachel's intention and Sarah's, and then the fact that Bilhah is just is just kind of a is just kind of an instrument and uh, doesn't doesn't have any kind anything like the role that Hagar does. But I think yeah, the the conflict is there in different in, at different levels. It, it's surely significant too that that Leah um, is despised. Are rejected in some ways, and uh, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, uh, rejected, opens her womb, apparently Jacob needs to learn a lesson about how God does indeed side with those who are uh, spurned, uh, just as uh, Abraham had to learn that lesson with uh, with Hagar and Ishmael, um, and uh, also, um, Isaac had to learn that lesson with Jacob. Now, Jacob has to learn that lesson in a, in a slightly different way, that um, Leah has real faith, and uh, Jacob's rejection of her um, is not right, not good. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah, thanks. The particular um, statement that Rachel makes in verse um, 6, Peter, after she's given a son via Bilhah, strikes me as interesting. You know, God has vindicated me, um, she says, and heard my voice and, and given me a son. So she calls his, uh, his name Dan to do with the vindication. That strikes me as just a, a complete misconstrual of what's gone on. I mean, initially she actually demands of Jacob, you know, give me children or I shall die. And Jacob is is angry with her in, in response in the, in the next verse. And it reminds me very much of Dan's own behaviour, the tribe of Dan, um, in the book of Judges, when they go to get their inheritance, um, they're sort of they're put off going up to the hill country and fighting the difficult battles there, and they look for an easy uh, an easy victory in response, and so they bump into a Levite um, uh, who's serving in a house of idols and says you know will will our journey prosper and, and he says yeah it'll be great you know and and so they again falsely take that as vindication when they've kind of sought the easy way out really and and uh they misconstrue i guess what god has done in a very similar way to to the way rachel does yeah i, I guess i've taken that more straightforwardly that uh, she's in She's in a state of uh, public shame because she's unable to bear children, and then the Lord uh, gives her through this uh, through this uh, kind of secondary path a son to call her own. And uh, so I've taken that more straightforwardly, but that's a, that's an interesting wrinkle on it. Um, and it it does you have the Rachel certainly introduces she thinks of her struggle with Leah not just as sister sister rivalry. But she thinks of her struggle with Leah as involving uh, God's approval uh, of one or the other. God vindicated me by the birth of Dan. And then uh, verse 8, with wrestlings of Elohim, I have wrestled my sister. So um, that's that's an ambiguous ambiguous phrase. But I think um, I don't uh, – the the common translation of Elohim there is just a kind of modifier of wrestlings, like a divine wrestlings or godlike wrestlings. I think it's she's introducing a theological dimension into her struggle with Leah, 
Uh, and you're suggesting, James, that that's she's kind of doing that illegitimately, that she's uh, um, not uh, she's not justified in bringing God's uh, invoking God as as a as a as her partner in this struggle. Maybe. I mean, it, I guess in view of the textual connection I'm, I'm trying to make with Dan, um, uh, another thing that kind of interestingly ties those two incidents together is the way in which just as um, Laban goes uh, chasing after uh, Jacob and effectively Rachel because of the household gods which have been taken. Um, as Dan goes away from that house of idols, um, the Danites take all the idols and then the guy comes chasing after him saying, you know, where, where are you going with my gods? So it, it feels like there is some interaction there. I think to add to that, um, in the case of Jacob and Esau, the wrestling take a lot, lot of attention, but when they actually meet up at the end, there is no wrestling. They embrace, not in wrestling, but in reconciliation. And you have a similar thing, I think, with the episode at the wheat harvest here, where after all this wrestling with her sister and rivalry and envy, Rachel takes a different position. She asks whether she can have some of Leah's son's mandrakes. And I think the significance here, and Rabbi David Foreman has spoken very insightfully on this, I think, um, is that what has happened is that she's reconciled the idea that she won't have children herself, perhaps, but she can be as a mother to the others, not as a rival, but as a sister. And so when Reuben comes in with the mandrakes, the point is not what the mandrakes are, whether they're some aphrodisiac or something. The point is that they're the gift of the oldest son to his mother. He's just come of age. He's he's just come of the age where he could give a gift to his mother. He's a toddler at this point. And his mother's love and all her wrestlings and rivalries are being met with this final gift from her son that can give some love back to her from all that she's been denied. And now her sister, her great rival, is asking to take that from her. But she doesn't realize that, in fact, her sister's not wanting to be a rival anymore, but a sister. And then the response of Rachel to that is to actually give what was first taken from her, which is the um, bed of Jacob, that she can go into the bed of Jacob that was first taken on that fateful wedding night. And then as a result of that, Issachar is born. And then at that point, the Lord remembers Rachel and her womb is opened. And he, um, Foreman argues that we have a callback to that in Jeremiah chapter 31, where Rachel is mourning for her children, and then the Lord says to refrain from weeping that there is a reward for her work and that they'll come back. She's presented as the matriarch of the whole nation, and the reference to the reward from her work is essentially saying there is an Issachar for, your, for what you have done. Um, Leah received her Issachar when she lay with Jacob that night, and then in the case of Rachel, because of what the reconciliation that she wrought in her generation, there is an Issachar for her too, which is the bringing in of all of the children of Jacob and she being the matriarch of everyone. Hmm. The, the latter part of uh, Foreman's explanation makes more sense to me that there's a, there's a concession on Rachel's part. Um, I don't, I, I'm not quite following how, uh, Rachel's request for the mandrakes is uh, is a is a already a signal of a desire to reconcile. Is that what he's is that what he's saying? 
yes, that she wants to share in the love of her sister or the love of the child of her sister, um, not actually having a child of her own to be her sister's rival, but to share in her sister's joy. Interesting. So, but I, I think the uh, that's a that's a very interesting take, and I think the the latter part of it um, still have to still have to think about that first part. The latter part of it, where Rachel does concede Jacob's bed to Leah, that's uh, that does signal something new with Rachel. Uh, no longer the envy that she starts with at the beginning of the chapter, but but the the fact that they're mandrakes surely means something. <laughs> Yes, I would connect that with the second part of the chapter, where there is again a sort of, um, there is something connected with fertility and um, some sort of um, the rods. Um, there seems to be some sort of phallic imagery there. And one of the best explanations I've heard is that there is a reversal of the events where Jacob was deceived. So the place where they go to drink, there is the barrenness of the fruitful at this point, um, so that the um, the ones that are given the speckled and the spotted can actually become fruitful. And so just as Jacob was deceived at a drinking feast by Laban, Laban is being deceived by Jacob where the flocks go to drink. And Rachel is connected with the flocks from the very beginning. There are three flocks that come in, hers being the fourth. And then at the end, there are when he actually visits Esau, there are three companies that go and then Rachel is the final company. And so I think within that, there's this parallel between the flocks and the household, um, which has four flocks within it. And Rachel's flock um, can probably be best understood in terms of the, the symbols of that event. And so I think the mandrakes probably connect with um, the, the rods in the second part of the chapter, both very weird things that are found in close proximity. That idea of the um, uh, the connection there with the wages seems interesting just because um, that uh, same uh, route that's behind um, Issachar um, is used when uh, Laban and Jacob are, are disputing over what his wages shall be. And so it feels like that there are some quite strong intertextual connections there. Um, I particularly like the fact that in, Gen uh, in Jeremiah 31, uh, when it talks about uh, Rachel is saying there is a reward, it's, I think, uh, yesh sachar there. Um, and so you've got two shins next to one another, which resonates marvellously with the way in which um, the name Issachar is spelled oddly um, with, you know, a double letter shin so there are some very close textual connections there i think as we talked about last time there's a hints in genesis and these miracle birth stories of um a coming virgin birth when the lord's going to intervene directly and uh and cause a conception in mary and we have that kind of thing going on here with rachel uh, after the incident with the mandrakes verse 22 says that the uh, god remembered rachel god gave heed to her so she had been uh, asking the Lord for uh, to open her womb, and uh, God God hears and remembers. So uh, th this is the same phrasing that's used in the middle of the flood story, the the hinge of the flood story. It's a big chiasm uh, in the uh, 
chapters uh, six through nine of Genesis, and the hinge of it is eight one, which is God remembered Noah, and then everything that happened to destroy the world begins to be undone. And you have a similar kind of thing here when God remembers Rachel and uh, gives her this son. Again, the uh, Jacob is the is the human father, but the way that the text uh, presents it, God is the one who's giving her this child. And um, it's at that point where he remembers Rachel that things begin to things begin to change. And again, I think uh, to go back to the general theme of this of this series of podcasts, uh, these this throws uh, again a certain kind of light, certain kind of coloration on the birth of Jesus. Uh, last time we talked about the struggle between brother and brother that sets a context for the birth of Jesus. Um, the birth of Jacob and Esau is a preview of the, of the contested birth of Jesus, the true Israel. Uh, and here we have a struggle between mothers. That's a context in which God remembers uh, a faithful Israel and uh, opens the womb of faithful Israel so that faithful Israel can give birth to the Messiah. So again, we have this, this larger um, national frame uh, that uh, that sets up the significance of of this miracle birth. As I mentioned at the beginning, uh, the story of Jacob in chapters twenty five to thirty five of Genesis is set up punctuated by these birth stories: Jacob's own birth, along with Esau, uh, the birth of Joseph that we've been talking about, and then we have the birth of Benjamin at the end of the story in chapter thirty five. Uh, this is when uh, Jacob has returned. He's uh, He's uh, reconciled with Esau, and now he's going to Bethel, which is the kind of the launching place back in chapter 28. It was the launching place for his sojourn in Paddan Aram. And he's making a kind of pilgrimage through the land, and the, the, uh, the chapter is organized as a kind of travelogue as he's passing from north toward the south of, uh, of uh, the land that he's going to inherit. And that uh, tra- travelogue is punctuated by references to, well, to um, uh, acts of worship. He sets up an altar at God's command. Uh, he, uh, uh, they put away their idols and they call upon the name of the Lord. There's, uh, that's one theme. And then there's also, it's punctuated by these notices of death. So in verse 8 of chapter 35, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, dies and she's buried below Bethel under the oak. Uh, then... Uh, Rachel, this is what we want to look at. Rachel dies giving birth to her second son, Benjamin. Uh, and then we have the, the death of uh, Isaac is mentioned right at the end of the chapter. And that closes out this section of the book of Genesis. So we have Rachel giving birth at the same, she gives birth and then dies. And that's in a context of, uh, in a sense, it's a, it's a return from exile, but it's this return from exile surrounded by these uh, incidents of uh, bur- death and burial, which gives a kind of a somber tonality to the chapter. Rachel's life more generally has seemed to be lived out under the shadow of death. There's tears connected with her um, at a number of points. And we see it in the very first meeting of Jacob and Rachel, there are tears, there are a sense of joy, but there's also this tragedy that hangs over Rachel throughout her life. And Earlier in chapter 31, there was the pursuit when she had taken the household gods of her father and she was sitting upon them in, on the camel. And then she was um, 
there was a death sentence declared over the person in whose possession these were found. And they weren't found. And she said that she was um, during her period at the time and so couldn't get up. But at that point, we have a death sentence declared over her. And it seems in some in some ways that that death sentence was effective. It was just delayed. And so she dies giving birth and there's the blood connected with the um, blood of her menstruation back in chapter 31. And there are callbacks to that event in the lives of her, of her children. So in the case of Jacob, in the case of Joseph, there are camels that come from Gilead, the place where there had been that confrontation. And they're the ones that take her son Joseph down into Egypt. There's also later on the pursuit of the brothers, the death sentence that declared over them, the instrument of divination that's been taken. And of course, it's Benjamin, her youngest son, in whose possession it is found. And so that death sentence and then the life that comes forth from the dad is very much a theme, I think, that continues in her story. And the fact that the household gods are buried at the beginning of this chapter and then she's buried later on in it, I think, is not an accident. Uh, chronologically, this all happens after Joseph is sold into Egypt. So this is uh, something of a repentance narrative and a preparation for restoration. Uh, I'll, I'll accept your. Uh, I don't. I don't know the. I don't know the chronology. I accept that you're. You got that right, and yeah, that that would be put a different uh, flavor to it. Also means that uh, if Joseph has already disappeared, then you've got Rachel. Uh, dying as giving birth to her second son, but she's in mourning as Jacob is for uh, her first son. So I think that Alistair's point about the, the tears of Rachel kind of dominating, not just uh, here as she, uh, you know, she gives birth and uh, dies, but uh, you know, she's desperate for children as we saw earlier in uh, at the beginning of chapter 30. Um, she's desperate for children that are not, uh, and then as you're talking about these other episodes, these other indications that she's living her life under a kind of shadow of death. Um, I think that that feeds well into our uh, kind of enriches our understanding of what's going on in uh, Jeremiah 31, which which speaks of the of the tears of, of Rachel because her children are not. I mean, that, that's quoted in in the birth story of Jesus, of course, in, in Matthew 2, uh, talking about the uh, the slaughter of the innocents around Bethlehem, and the connection is partly geographic. Uh, and that geographic connection is a connection with her death. But uh, the tears of Rachel aren't just a reference to her death, because she's uh, she was weeping for her children who had not yet been born, desperate for them to be born. And that's part of the, uh, part of the uh, background that feeds into Jeremiah and then into Matthew. And that presence of Rachel as a figure behind Matthew's birth narrative, I think, is not just about the reference to um, Jeremiah. Um, that is really important. It's the, um, the slaughter of massacre of the innocents. And then the next verse um, in the Jeremiah quote is about the return of the children. And the next verse in the Matthew account, which does not quote that next verse, is the return of Christ from Egypt. And I think there is another verse, though, that is very important, which is Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which he quotes earlier on in the narrative, which refers to the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. 
And within that broader context in Micah, there are a number of references to the story of Rachel. There's this woman struggling to give birth, the nation. There's the reference to Ephrath, to Migdalida, the tower of the flock, which is the place where Jacob camps after the birth, uh, after the birth of Benjamin and the death of, um, of Rachel. And now they've finally reached Bethlehem, which um, tragically Rachel never reached. She was buried on the way. But now in Christ, the Messiah promised in um, Micah this fruitful birth, which will achieve what was frustrated in the story of Genesis, has now come to pass. And the weeping character of Rachel finally receives her children. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm